Well, if you would this morning, let's go to Mark chapter 14. Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. We have spent uh, about a year and a half or so going through the book of Mark. And uh, we've seen specifically that Mark looks at Jesus through the lens of being the suffering servant. And of course, Mark, it's kind of strange he would write that because at one time he did everything he could to avoid suffering. But uh, I'm thankful that failure doesn't have to be final. And God picked him to write this gospel about Jesus as a suffering servant. It's prophesied in the book of Isaiah. We've seen that Mark is much more concerned with the works of Christ than it is the words of Christ. And no doubt we've seen several works. I mean, the book of Mark just goes from one event to another. And we've seen Jesus heal people, cast out devils. He's um, had these run-ins with the Pharisees. He's trained the disciples. And uh, although Mark is definitely more about his works, we just got out of Mark chapter 13, which was the longest discourse of Mark in the book of Mark, of Jesus in the book of Mark. And we saw a lot of things about the end times and what the Lord has to say about that. And uh, I know that for about two chapters, we've been at the temple. Everything that's happened in the past two chapters has been either in the temple or just outside the temple. And I think that while it's always important to look at the narrower emphases, sometimes we need to zoom out and remember where we are. We're halfway through crucifixion week right now. In fact, by the time you get to Mark 14, Jesus is now within 48 hours of His death. And so, but once again, the narrative shifts back to works, not so much about words. And so um, I think it's important to point out before we read our text today, um, this is now Passover week. And just to kind of remind you, if you'll remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, remember the final plague where uh, the Lord and the, He sent the, the death angel to uh, kill the firstborn of every household, except for the ones that had the blood of the Lamb on the door frame. And ever since that time, the Jews celebrated a yearly Passover feast in remembrance of them of the Lord passing over the houses. And so this is the most crowded that Jerusalem ever gets in a year's time. Uh, most historians say that during this time there would have been at least 300,000 pilgrims that had come in for that week that didn't normally live there. So you take the people that were already living there, plus about 300,000 plus that had come in. Obviously, the hotel rooms ran out of rooms and people were staying in tents in the street. So it's extremely crowded. And it is during this time that the disciples and Jesus, along with uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, at least we know those for sure, were in the house of Simon the leper. I don't believe that he was currently a leper. I think that was a title he was remembered for. I think Jesus had probably healed him. And because as uh, Derek talked about this morning, uh, everything that a leper touched would have been unclean. Nobody would have gone in his house, but uh, the Lord healed him. And I'm thankful the Lord can forgive sinners and make it as if it was never that way. Amen. And uh, with that in mind, let's read our text this morning. Let's, um, one more thing I want to uh, paint, I guess, before we read this. This is the story of Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus, uh, anointing Jesus with this expensive spikenard. And there's been a lot of speculation 
as to what exactly she knew about Jesus. She knew something that everybody else didn't know. I mean, she, she had it. She got it more than they did. And I don't know what all she knew. I, I fully doubt that she had a complete picture of who Jesus was. But she did know a few things. Number one, he was about to die. She'd figured that out. I mean, Jesus had told him three times, but evidently it just didn't, didn't click. You know, it's like, like we are sometimes. Sometimes we're hard-headed. And, uh, but she knew he was about to die, and she knew he was special. Uh, maybe she even figured out he was the Messiah. Did she figure out exactly who he was? Probably not. But I don't think we have to go too deep with this. I don't think we have to speculate a lot. I think we can take the simple truths that we find in this text and definitely find the message here. She knew he was special and that he was about to die. Let's read the Word of God together. Uh, Mark 14, verse 1, it says, After two days was the feast of Passover and of unleavened bread. And the chief priest and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she brake the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves, and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than three hundred pence, and had been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could." She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you this morning. God, we thank you for salvation in Christ. Lord, we thank you for forgiveness of sin. And God, I just uh, pray that you would help me this morning uh, to preach what's here. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you would fill me your Holy Spirit, empty of sin and self. And God, be with those that are sick and couldn't be here. Be with those that are listening by live stream. Father, I pray that if one is lost, that you'd save them and arrest them and show them their need for salvation. God, if somebody is hurting if they're uh, just consumed by worry, God, that you'd bring peace to their mind and heart. And God, if somebody's struggling with sin, that you would give them power over that. Be with us this morning. We'll thank you and praise you for it. In Christ's name, I pray you saints. Amen. So this morning I want to preach on the thought of He is worthy. He is worthy. And when we look at Mary here, who is the woman who has broken this spikenard, and she has anointed the head of Jesus. And as we find out in uh, Matthew and Luke, also his feet, she wiped the excess with her hair. And so she has wrought a good work on Jesus, as he said, as he bragged on her. And so we see that um, she has sacrificed and she has seen that Jesus is worthy. And so I believe we can look at this text and we can look at... Uh, Mary, and she believed that Jesus was worthy of some magnificent things. And I want to ask you a question this morning. Is He worthy in your own life? 
Because here's the thing, listen, as complicated as we can make certain things in the Bible, and no doubt we like to get deep sometimes in theology, and you know, we like to talk about these things. These are good things. But as complicated as we can make some of these things, the simple truth is this. Whatever you really think about Jesus Christ is going to dictate how you live your life. That's it. I think it was a Spurgeon who said that his whole theology could be summed up in these words, Christ died for me. (laughs) My theology can be summed up in that one phrase. And if you really believe that Jesus Christ is God the Son, that He is the, the eternal second person of the triune Godhead, that He is the Creator of all things, that when He came to this earth, He as the Creator entered into His creation. He lived a sinless life as the God-man. He died on the cross for sinners. And He rose from the dead three days later. That He is seated on the right hand of the Father. And one day He is going to return. And one day, whether in death or whether in rapture, we stand before Him, that we will stand before Him in judgment. If you really believe that, business is going to pick up. And if you don't believe that, there's nothing I can do to poke or prod or motivate you. Uh, I might get your compliance, but only God can get your heart. And uh, in one of my counseling classes that I'm taking this semester, I've been reading a fantastic book. And, and he brought up the, the thought, I've never really thought about it like this. And he said that there's a big struggle in every Christian family, especially if you have Christian parents. And the struggle is that if we're not careful, instead of trying to get the heart of our children, what we do is we just try to get their compl- uh, compliance. And he called it Christian peer pressure. I thought that was such a good term. That we try to influence people through Christian peer pressure. That doesn't assure that we're going to get their heart. I'm much more concerned with the heart of my children than I am getting their outward compliance. That's called deception. I'm much more as a church, I'm concerned about your heart. I want you to serve God and dedicate yourself to God from the heart. And if you really believe these things about Jesus, if He's not just some fairy tale in some story somewhere, if He really is who He says He is, and you believe that, it's going to change everything about your life. It's going to change your dedication. It's going to change your church attendance. It's going to change your giving. It's going to change your witnessing. It's going to change the way that you live your life and and lead your family. I mean, it, it changes everything. If Jesus Christ is on the throne of your heart, it changes everything. So I want to ask you, is He worthy this morning? I, we see three things, or a few things here. Three from uh, Mary and then uh, one from the other others here in the crowd. But uh, what is he worthy of? I don't have any fancy alliteration this morning. I just want to tell you what's here in the text. But uh, the first thing I see here as far as when we ask the question, what is he worthy of? Well, according to some, he's worthy of death. Number one, death. Uh, Look at verse 1 again. It says, After two days was the feast of the Passover and of the unleavened bread, and the chief priest and the scribes, sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. Skip, skip down to the latter part of our text and verse 10. 
It says, And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest, the crowd that we just read about this conspiring against Jesus. He went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. According to Judas and the chief priest, Jesus is worthy of death. He's worthy to be killed, to be brutally murdered. Uh, what we just saw, this is called an intercalation where you have a narrative sandwiched between two other narratives for the purpose of contrast. In the middle, you find somebody who thinks Jesus is worthy of everything they've got. And on the bookends, you have people that think He's worthy of nothing but death. You couldn't have a greater contrast. But I think what this shows us is there is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus Christ. There is no middle ground. I've been witnessing to somebody here recently, and y'all pray about that. God knows who they are. But uh, they think, and they think it's an honorable thing, they think they're walking a middle ground when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. That They might be a Christian, and they think really highly of Jesus Christ, but there are other religions that are good things. Friend, if Jesus Christ is the God of the universe and He is seated upon the throne, and He really did die for sinners, and He really is the only way to heaven, everything else is just false worship. The worship of false gods. That's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. So this crowd thought that He was worthy of death. Now, the the chief priest... They're just coming out with it. They want Him dead. They don't really care. They've never followed Jesus. They've never loved Jesus. They want Him dead. Now Judas is a unique situation because Judas has walked with Jesus for over three years now. He's heard Him preach. He's seen Him cast out devils. He's seen Him heal people. Why in the world would Judas follow Him for over three years if He was just going to betray Him? Now, I've talked to a lot of people that do not believe in the security, the eternal security of the believer. And they, what they try to say is, well, see, Judas had to have been saved, and then he, he became lost. He forfeited his salvation. Friend, Judas was never saved. And you can know this by what Jesus said. Jesus, in his early ministry, looked at him and said, Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? That doesn't sound like a saved person to me. And I believe it was John 13 when he was washing his disciples' feet and Peter tried to argue, you know, being real Peter-esque about arguing, about cleaning them up. And, and Jesus said, if I don't make you clean, you're not going to be clean. And he said, all of you are clean except one. For he knew who should betray him. So Judas was never saved. So the question becomes, why did he follow him for three years? Well, you find out, I believe it's in uh, Matthew's Gospel, possibly John as well, uh, but the, about this same text. And he's really the one here complaining about the spikenard being expensive. Oh, she could have given it to the poor. Well, the Bible says clearly that he held the money bag for the ministry. He was the, the treasurer of the disciples, so to speak. And the Bible said he was a thief. And so he is stealing ministry money. Now, I doubt they ever had a lot. Uh, but here's the thing. In Judas's mind, Judas and the Jews and even the rest of the disciples, they think that Jesus is coming in to be this great military king. He's going to defeat Rome. He's going to take the throne of David again. And guess what? If Judas is the treasurer of the king, what does that mean for him? 
That's all he's been thinking about. He's had dollar signs in his eyes the whole time. And this incident here showed him that was not who Jesus was and that's not what he was going to do. And so now, man, this is, I don't want to get into next week's message. We're going to talk about Judas a lot next week. But that ought to really be a wake-up call to us. See, he wasn't following the true Jesus. He was following a Jesus of his imagination that was going to do amazing things for him. And the moment that he realized that was not it is when he turned his back on him and he literally had him murdered for the price of a slave. That's how much worth Jesus was to him. So my question is, why are you following Jesus? First of all, are you following the right Jesus? Because that's an eternity's worth of difference right there. I, I was talking to somebody even this week about this very subject. And they basically said, well, I, I just love Jesus and I don't really get caught up in the depth of all this theology. And I told them, well, that's really problematic. Because here's the thing. Even such a simple phrase as Jesus saves is a theological statement. And it has to be clarified. I mean, you can ask a lot of questions about Jesus saves. Who is Jesus? Who does He save? What does He save from? How does He save? Because the Muslims think Jesus was just a prophet. The Mormons say that He's the offspring of Heavenly Father, who is also the brother of Satan. The philosophers say that Jesus was a good man. The Jehovah's Witnesses say that He was a created being and that He's never been divine. Which one is the truth? What this book says about Him is true. Amen. He is the God of the universe, second person of the Godhead, the Savior of the world. Amen. And so when we look at this, they thought He was worthy of death because He wasn't what they wanted Him to be. And that is, I think that's one of the greatest traps that we face in our society. Is Even in the American church, we have created a false Jesus. We have created, just like Judas, we have created a Jesus in our own image, in our own imagination, who is just like we are. And I've said it before, but I'll say it again. If you worship a God who is just like you, who's okay with every single thing you do, then your God is really you. Your Jesus stares at you every time you look in the mirror. It's not the real Jesus. We can't just create a Jesus in our own imagination, and pretend that He's the Jesus of the Bible. They, he, was, he was not going to be what they wanted Him to be. Now, Jesus never sinned. He never wronged anyone. He only healed people, raised the dead, fed the hungry, and He preached truth. Kill Him, please. Let's murder Him now. That just shows the depths of human wickedness. God came to this earth as an innocent lamb who only healed and helped and preached truth. And the world came together to murder him. They came together to murder the Son of God. Now, in their opinion, Jesus was messing up their life. And Judas pretended to be a follower because he wanted to get rich. I've said that. And the truth is, you either love him or hate him. Now, there might be some pretenders out there who seem to care about Jesus. But as soon as he has lost his usefulness in their mind, they're gone. They're gone. I remember specifically uh, years ago, we had a, a young couple that started coming to church. And 
Um, they came, I'm talking about every time the doors were open. They came, they seemed genuine, they really wanted to, it seemed like they wanted to serve the Lord, or so I thought, and come to find out, they had several miscarriages. A lot of them had been later uh, in the pregnancy, and it was just a really heartbreaking scenario. They wanted to have a child, and we prayed with them, we prayed for them, and uh, lo and behold, uh, she gets pregnant, was able to carry the baby to full term, had a beautiful baby, and we even, uh, the church even come together and gotten gifts to take them, and we brought it to the hospital and never saw them again. Never saw them again. Because they wanted God to give them a child, and once they got that child, they didn't need God anymore. I've seen that over and over and over again. Somebody comes to church for a little while, and it's not that they're sorry for their sin. They're sorry for the consequences of their sin. And as soon as the consequences go away, so do they. Um, I've seen people like that couple I mentioned, they they come to church because they want God to do something for them. They want God to be their genie in the lamp and give them their wishes. And once they get their wishes, they've got no need for the genie anymore. It's so incredibly selfish and self-centered. And God does not worship us. We're supposed to worship Him. (laughs) We've created a, a church in America where to hear them talk, you would think that God was up there worshiping you. I heard uh, somebody sent me a clip. I guess they knew it would get a rise out of me. And I'll shoot this rabbit dead and we'll go on somewhere else. But if it wasn't bad enough that Joel Osteen's been preaching for decades, now his son is preaching. So now we got more years and years to put up with that stuff. And somebody sent me a clip of his son preaching, and I'm not making this up. He was telling the congregation that God was just so in, God is just so infatuated with you. He, he is just watching every step you take. He's so enamored with you. He's got his cell phone out taking pictures of you. What in the world? He's the God of the universe, folks. He's not worshiping you and me. That crowd thought he was worthy of death. What wickedness. Now, before we move to our second point, I I do want to point this out. And we're going to get into this in the coming weeks when we talk about Passover. But I find it interesting. Look at verse 1 again real quick, and I'll move to point 2. It says, After two days was the feast of the Passover, and of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. Jesus had a lot of followers. There's hundreds of thousands of visitors here this week. They don't want, it. They don't want any problems. And so they, comp- they conspire. And I believe, based on the way it's worded, and a lot of scholars believe this as well, they were going, their plan was to wait till after the feast was over and everybody had gone their separate ways and then they could just take him. But not only did they you know, have to crucify him, you know, it got escalated to the point they had to crucify him during Passover week. They crucified him on the Passover. And so the exact opposite of what they wanted to happen happened. And from forever since that day, the feast is not so much about what happened with Moses and the children of Israel. It was about Jesus Christ that they crucified on that day. We're going to see that clearly when we get to the Passover. Uh, I believe two weeks will be there. But um, they wanted him dead. Is he worthy of death to you? Do you live a life as if he's already dead to you? I'd be careful about that. 
He's worthy of so much more than that. The second thing as far as what is He worthy of, He's worthy of worship. Now we get into the contrast of Mary here. Uh, Verse 3, it says, "...and being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper..." As he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. We find in this text that this particular spikenard, which was like a, it was like a perfume, basically, uh, an oily perfume, very fragrant, and it was very expensive. Um, Three hundred pence uh, would have bought basically a year's worth, and that's a year's salary for the average worker. Can you imagine working a whole year for a bottle of perfume? My God, it must have been some good stuff. A whole year for this. It, it was no doubt, it was the most expensive, valuable thing that she owned. A year's worth. And yet she poured it out. She broke it. Um, I'll say this. In our lives, we're going to worship something. I hope you understand that. I love how the, the atheists act like they don't worship anything. When they do, they worship self-autonomy. They worship themselves. Everybody worships something. We were made to worship. We're going to worship something. Whether it's the creature or the creator. Whether it's ourself or the God that created us. Uh, whether it's our career whether it's our family, our spouses, our children, our jobs, our education, we're going to make a God out of something. We're going to worship something. We're going to trust certain things to make us happy. We will pursue certain things that we deem to be beneficial to our life. We're going to say, that's worthy of my life, of my passion, of my pursuit. True idolatry is when we seek satisfaction in a source outside of God. And even going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, uh, me and the kids talked about this in our devotion this week. And I was trying to explain to them that if, if Satan can ever get us ungrateful for what God has done for us, if he can ever make us feel like God has withheld something from us, that's when temptation, that's when sin becomes appealing to us. Satan did this with... Uh, Eve in the garden, and he did it with Jesus in the wilderness. And he basically said, God knows that in the day you'll eat thereof, you'll, you'll be a God. He is holding out on you. When he came to Jesus, he said, if you're really the Son of God, command that these stones be turned into bread. In other words, if you were really the Son of God, you wouldn't be starving out here in the wilderness. God would not do that to one of His children. See how He uses that? He tries to make people feel like God is held out on them. Well, then they pursue other things. And what Mary did here was clearly an act of sacrificial worship. Uh, By the way, true worship always includes sacrifice. And the truth is, you will sacrifice for the things that you think are important. True worship will always equate to sacrifice. Let me say this. Uh, I have hobbies. Well, I used to. (laughs) I have hobbies. I have things I like to do. I like to hunt and fish. They're great hobbies, but they make terrible gods. I like to watch some sporting events. Sporting uh, sports are a good pastime. They're a horrible god. I love my family. I love my wife. I love my children. But I understand that there's always that place that even they don't belong in. I love my family, but they would make a terrible god. 
uh, I'm, I'm excited about my career, but hey, I've seen people make a God out of the ministry. Uh, I, I think, and it's not really even a career to me, it's a calling. If it was a career, I'd have quit a long time ago. Every time I've thrown in the towel, the Lord threw it back at me. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? There's some things that we can enjoy and we can put our time into, but they make miserable gods. In fact, the reason for what I do here is in service and worship to God. The reason that I try to take care of my wife and I try to raise my children in the nurture and estimation of the Lord is because of Him. It's, it's in worship to Him that I do this. It's not in worship of them. If I work hard at what I do, it's not just so that I'll be successful. It's because it'll bring honor and glory to Him. I want to do what I do heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. And so we need to have these things in perspective. Worship always requires sacrifice. In fact, you don't have to turn here, but, but jot this down. If you go back to Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham is going up the mountain to sacrifice Isaac, that's the first time the word worship is used. I believe it's, it may be verse 5, 22 and verse 5. It may be later. Don't quote me on that. But whenever Abraham sees the place that they're supposed to make sacrifice, he tells the servants, he said, stay here and I and the lad will go yonder and worship. He's going to sacrifice his son. He's going to kill his son. And he says, we're going to worship. Because true worship requires sacrifice and it requires obedience. You can't serve God the way that you want to. You can't make up your own rules and your own terms and say that I'm worshiping God. No, you're worshiping yourself. And you want God to put His stamp of approval on that. It always requires service, sacrifice, obedience. Do we worship God expecting something in return? Now certainly... I want to reiterate, God has promised to reward those that diligently seek Him. But the true worshiper doesn't figure that into the equation. You say, well, prove that, Brother Brown. Well, just think about Joseph. We're talking about him on Sunday night. He's just now been promoted to the Grand Vizier, but he was in slavery and in prison for a combination of 13 years. Do you think if he was really expecting something in return, or if he was just doing it for the payback, he would have quit a long time before that. Think about the Apostle Paul. My goodness, you go through the list of things he went through. He was shipwrecked multiple times, beaten, left for dead, stoned, uh, imprisoned, and eventually he was beheaded. If he was doing it for his reward in this life, he'd have never made it. I believe our ultimate reward will not come in this lifetime. Yes, we'll see God move. Yes, we'll see prayers answered. He's got grace that will sustain us, but our reward is not even here. It's not here. We have to look at it through an eternal lens. Who is more worthy of our worship? I'd say He is. I mean, what in this world, who in this world is more worthy than He is? What job, what career, what amount of money, what, what could anything be worth more than Him? Here in the news recently, you may have seen it, but um, there's a well-known Alabama football player who was drafted in the first round by the Las Vegas Raiders last year. He's having an excellent year, making millions, making money hand over fist. Um, He's one of the rising stars in the NFL. And this past week, he actually uh, went to a bar, got extremely drunk, went driving, 
uh, hit a woman in the back and the woman's car caught on fire and she burned alive in the car and he's facing probably even upwards of 46 years in prison. And, uh, you know, legal blood alcohol limit was um, about twice what the legal limit was and his onboard computer showed that he was driving 156 miles an hour before he hit her. And so I, I wonder if you went to him and asked him what all that was worth, what he would say. Nothing. What is it worth when you get to the end of your life and you squandered it on things that have no eternal value? That's right. Nothing. What is more worthy than Him? But then thirdly, I've got two more and I'm done. He's worthy of our gifts. Look at verse 3. Again, and being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she broke the box and poured it out on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And so we see this in this text that she thought it, she thought it was worthy. They thought it was a waste. And see, understand this. And I, man, I hope you get this. If you ever sell out for Jesus Christ and you really sure enough sacrifice your life to serve Him, you're not going to have an amen corner. You're not going to have a bunch of pats on the back and even a lot of your family is going to give you zero support in that matter. They're going to think it's a waste. And honestly, think about this. Let's just think about this in rational terms. If Jesus isn't God, if He really isn't the Savior of the world, if he isn't who he says he is, if all this is just a fantasy, if it's just make-believe, then no wonder the world pities us. Think about the Apostle Paul having been beaten and everything he went through for Jesus and ends up dying by the axe. Yeah, he should be pitied. Because he wasted his life for something that's not even real. But if he is real, and he is, and if he is the sovereign monarch of the universe, and He is. And if we really are going to stand before Him and see Him in all of His glory, and He really is going to dish out rewards of judgment, and we really are going to spend all of eternity with Him, then friend, what better thing to live for? Amen. He's worthy of our gifts. As I mentioned, this spikener is worth about a year's wages. And she took this oil and she broke it because she wasn't planning on saving any of it. She poured it all out. I love that analogy. She poured it all out for the Lord. We find the other Gospels, she also anointed His feet. She wiped the excess with her hair. And I think it's interesting to note that she anointed His head. This is what would have been done for a king. Kings were anointed like this. You remember how Samuel anointed David with oil? Kings were anointed, or Samuel, um, uh, Samuel anointed both David and Saul, actually. And so we see this. And she, in other words, she treated him like a king. He deserves to be treated like a king because he's the king of all the universe. And whether she fully grasped who Jesus was or not, she sure treated him like, like she did, like she got it. He's worthy of our valuable gifts. He's worthy of our best. And by the way, let me just throw this out here to you. Everything belongs to Him anyway. Everything you have belongs to God. I know that's, man, that's so humbling and it's not exciting and it's not going to fill a lot of seats. But everything you have belongs to God. 
Name one thing that you have. Don't say this out loud, please. But think about it. What, what thing could you name that actually belongs to you? It doesn't belong to you. God's letting you borrow it, and He can take it back anytime He wants to. My body belongs to God. This life that He gave me belongs to God. My children belong to God. My home, my house, my material possessions, everything I have belongs to God. And when you think about it that way, it's awful hard not to give it back if He calls for it. Everything He has belongs, everything we have belongs to Him. And what, what do you have that couldn't be taken away? So the question remains, though, and I'll, I'll answer this and I'll get to my last point. How exactly do we give to the Lord when it pertains to gifts? I mean, He's not literally sitting here in the congregation. We couldn't go to Him like Mary and do what she did. He's in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. So how do we give to the Lord when it comes to our gifts and our finances? And just three quick things that I'll hit and we'll move to our last point. But obviously the tithe, let me, let me mention something about the tithe. The word tithe means a tenth. That's literally what it means. And I do want to say this. Um, when it comes to the New Testament, there's not a single New Testament text, not a single epistle to the church. There's nothing I could turn to and say to the church in the New Testament, Thou shalt give a tenth. I can't find it. It's not in there. I'm not going to put it there. Here's what I will say. What you will find is that prior to the law, both Abraham and Jacob, of their own volition, said, I am going to commit to God a tenth or a tithe of all my first fruit. So prior to the law, they decided to do that. And then we find in the law, it was required to give a tenth unto the, the services of the temple and to care for the priest, and they did that. And then you see after the law in the New Testament... I don't see anything that clear, but I would say this. If people gave a tenth prior to the law, if they were required to give a tenth during the law, why would we ever decide to give less after the law? Why would we decide to give less under grace? I've, I've committed in my heart, I'm going to do that and more. And, and it's not that you're just giving to a church. You're certainly not giving to the pastor. You're giving to the Lord. And that's how the service of the church and the work of the church goes forth. And so commit to giving to the Lord. But I would say even above a tithe in missions, that's how we support missions. Um, I would say helping the poor, and we see it even in this text. He said, the poor you have with you always. We need to, and listen, you don't have to, this is one thing I love about Christian service. You don't have to do everything through the church. We don't have a, have a business meeting every time you find a need. Pray, say, God, show me somebody in need and then help me meet that need. We need to be sensitive to those things. And, and even the Lord said by, uh, you know, doing unto the least of these you've done unto me. And so that's how we serve the Lord in our giving. Um, but lastly, I'll say this and I'm done. Um, I believe that God is worthy. I believe the Lord is worthy of our time. Our time. Look at verse 6. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble you her? She hath wrought a good work on me. Boy, I sure would love that Jesus could say something like that about me. He said, For you have the poor with you always. And whensoever you will, you may do them good. But me you have not always. She hath done what she could. That to me, 
That phrase in verse 8 is one of the most beautiful phrases in all the Bible. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand and anointed my body to the bearing. Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And that's come true, isn't it? That's been 2,000 years ago, and we're about 7,000 miles away from where this happened, and yet we're talking about this woman and what she did. And when you look at this text that we just read, these last few verses, Jesus is making a very clear distinction of time. He's, he's pointing to a time frame. And He said, you have the poor with you always. You can always serve them. But I'm just here for a short time. And in that time, she hath done what she could. Now listen, we're not on a time frame as far as Jesus' death. But we're certainly on a time frame as far as our death. The Bible says, It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. And we don't know when that is. And my prayer, my ultimate prayer, if I fail at this, I'll feel like I failed everything. That the Lord could say He has done what He could. In our lives, it... We could say we had done what we could, and everybody's different. Everybody has different talents, different resources, different gifts. But have you done what you could? In the case of Mary, this may have been the only valuable thing she had, but she did what she could with it. She did what she could. Our time is short. What have you done to serve the Lord? What a legacy that a memorial would be left to this lady of what she did for Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for that. She wasn't a big name. She wasn't any kind of big name. I mean, um, you know, we think in terms of our day, we think in terms of the only people serving God are like pastors or maybe Sunday school teachers or singers or author, whatever. No, she was just a servant. That's it. That's it. And we can serve. And I want to share this story uh, really quick to wrap this up. And I know this is going <laughs> to make me sound really nerdy, and that's, I guess, if the shoe fits. But um, I got a, a new book the other day, as if I need more, right? I got a new book on Revelation because we're going to be studying through Revelation. And it's one of my textbooks for a class I'm taking next semester. I thought I'd go ahead and get it start reading it. And the foreword, the, the book itself is by John F. Walvard. Walvard, it's hard, I always get that, it's hard to say that name. But his son is John E. Walvard. And the son, John the son, wrote the foreword to this book, which was written by his father. And I'm, I know this is nerdy. I cried reading the foreword to a theology book, okay? But the way this book came into existence is his dad was a seminary professor, preacher, pastor, and he lived till he was 92 years old. And he had recorded over 300 and something pages of notes on the book of Revelation. But he never got anything published. And at 92 years old, the doctor gave him six weeks to live. But he was very cognizant. He never lost his mental capacity. And his son, while writing this forward, said that the last six weeks of his life was the most beautiful thing that he'd ever seen. He said people constantly from out of town, all over the world, former students and, and family members and friends. And, and it wasn't, he said, it wasn't a dreading of death. It was a celebration of life. It was a homegoing party. And he said that um, it was just so special to him 
to see the impact that his dad had on so many other people. But then he talked about the, the impact that his dad had on him. He said he remembered as a kid, he would have, his dad would have all these appointments, these preaching engagements all over the country and how they would take family trips. I always appreciate it when traveling preachers take their families with them. And he said he remembers as a kid, he said, Dad would put us into bed in a hotel room and he said half the night he'd be in the bathroom taking notes because he didn't want to wake us up. And he said he wrote 300-something pages and he said the last thing his dad ever asked him, he said, Son, he said, if you could, he said, could you... Maybe see if you get this published. And so that work that I have is a result of his daddy's lifetime of notes that his son had published posthumously for his dad. And I thought, man, what a way to go out. What a legacy. I believe he'd done what he could. When we leave here, and I, you know, one of the hardest things for me to do as a pastor is when I've had to preach funerals of people that at best, I didn't know where they were at. And at worst, I'm very concerned. And as a pastor, I can't lie for... I'm not going to lie for anybody. If I have to be compassionate, I'm not going to be mean. I remember a Methodist preacher, if you want to call him that, I was so angry, it's a miracle I managed to keep my mouth shut. But I went to a funeral of somebody who had zero testimony of salvation whatsoever. They died in a horrible circumstance. I'm not going to go into all that. But this Methodist so-called preacher stands up over this casket, looks at about the 150 people that are in attendance, and he said, not only is he in heaven, but you're all going to be reunited with him in heaven. I'm thinking, how in the world could you possibly say such a stupid thing? And, but the thing is, it's, it's hard walking that line sometimes. But it's a beautiful thing when somebody who has served the Lord, they've done everything they could to serve God. I'm, I know this sounds weird, but some of the most beautiful worship service I've ever been to were funerals. Some of the most beautiful worship services I've ever been to were funerals. I remember my pastor, huh, he did all he could. And I remember... Um, I mean, the cancer and the chemo just destroyed him so badly that the family actually decided to have a closed casket funeral. They wanted to remember him like he was. And I mean, through the, the day before, we had the, the viewing. And I mean, we, couldn't, we just couldn't hardly handle everybody. It was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people just lined up out the door. We ran out of parking. We ran out of seating. We, we had to have an overflow in the old sanctuary. We had a live stream over there. And, and I mean, it was just unbelievable the impact that he had had. Oh, what a way to go out. And I, not that I'm trying to impress anybody. I don't, I don't want that. I just want him to say, well done thy good and faithful servant. But when we do that, I believe people recognize that. I believe we're recognizing this woman this morning. Have you done all you could? Is he worthy? What are you holding on to? What are you holding back? Because he's worthy. Give everything you have in the service of God. Because here's the thing. If you really believe who he's, that he is who he said he is, You're not going to see these things as sacrifices. They're going to be investments in eternity.